The year is 31 BC. The war between Octavian and Mark Antony had reached its climax. Two of the leading men of the Roman Republic. Both saw the other as a threat to the safeguarding of the Republic, as they both grew in power during their alliance of the Second Triumvirate. These two great figures clashed at the Battle of Actium, where Octavian was the victor. Antony and Cleopatra, an Egyptian queen, fled to Egypt for safety. However, Octavian pressed an invasion into Egypt and marched on Mark Antony and Cleopatra. It is here that the end of the Republic was near. Mark Antony, having believed Cleopatra had committed suicide, drove his sword into himself, attempting to end his life, only to find out, as he was slowly dying, that Cleopatra had not committed suicide at all, but was hiding. Mark Antony, after finding her, died in his lover's arms, and with his final breath, the Roman Republic had been destroyed. Octavian now had full supreme power and would rise to become the first emperor of Rome, bringing a new age. The imperial period had begun. Was the ending of the Republic down to these two powerful figures? Or were the cracks already there? And if so, was the ending of the Republic always bound to happen? Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the AIQ podcast. My name is Alexander Goodman and on today's episode we're talking about the fall of the Roman Republic. Was it inevitable? First of all, I just want to say um, sorry if you feel, see or um, hear any differences in quality. We've had to move studios so uh, this should only be a temporary thing but I hope it's all okay. Anyway, let's get into it. So for anyone who doesn't really know uh, much about uh, the Roman Republic, I'm going to quickly explain what the Ro- Roman Republic was and how it, how it works. So the Roman Republic is what people would call a mixed constitution. This meant that it possessed characteristics of three major types of political systems found in the ancient world. And so it comes out into three bodies in the Roman constitution, and that is the consuls, the senate, and the people. And then we're going to briefly describe which each of these bodies did, starting with the consuls. So the consulship was an elective office inside the Roman Republic where an individual would kind of take command and lead the Roman Republic. Um, This was elected every single year and one person could only have it one time in their lifetime. And that was to ensure that no one grew too powerful. There would also be two consuls, so that was also another way to make sure that a person wasn't growing too powerful, so there was a checking system. The main role of the consuls then was, first of all, to have complete and total administration and control of any armies that they had on campaign that was given to them. And normally, both consuls would have a uh, campaign separate to each other, so there'll be many going on during a year. It was their job to introduce foreign ambassadors to the Senate and all the other magistrates, such as praetors and aedels, uh, and they received their orders from them. The only exception to this was the tribunes. So the next element of uh, the Roman governing was the Senate, and the Senate was a group of leading elites inside uh, the city of Rome itself, where the major families had members that would go and take part in this as an assembly, and they would contribute largely to the governing of um, the Republic. One of the major roles of the Senate was to have uh, the treasury and to give out allocations of money for different projects going on. So that could include repair, maintenance of cities. It would also uh, they'd give 
elements of money to different projects by different officials to undergo. And so they really would decide where the money of Rome would be put. The Senate was also responsible for any public investigations that needed um, inquirements, such as murder, treason, any crimes that um, required the Senate to step into. They were also needed whenever Rome's Italian allies required any controversies to be settled, uh, given assistance or given up penalties from Rome itself. It was the Senate's job to decide these matters. Um, it was also the same for Rome's allies outside of Italy as well. Whenever the Romans required to interfere in the affairs of other states, the Senate would be the ones who uh, had the responsibility of doing that. The Senate also received foreign ambassadors, as we mentioned, the consuls would receive them. The Senate would also receive them, and they would decide the actions to take after listening to them. So, as well as the Treasury, the Senate was in charge of all Roman foreign policy, and they made decisions on how Rome interacted with its neighbours and other factions. So, the last element of the Roman uh, governing system was the people. And we don't just mean all the people, it was only Roman citizens and... Even everyone who lived in Rome weren't Roman citizens. You had to be uh, fit a criteria to become a Roman citizen. But I'll explain that in another podcast if we ever make one on that. So the people of Rome formed the main courts in the city and were the ones who decided on most of the matters of life and death. They would also decide on the severity of monetary fines, especially if, if you're having to pay one and you'd previously held a high position in politics, then you'll probably have to pay out more as well. But perhaps more importantly, it was the people who voted for these elected officials. Um, and the assembly of people also voted on the passing and stopping of laws. They also had an impact on whether we went, if Rome went to war or had peace or, you know, quite a big impact on uh, the ongoings of uh, Roman politics. And whenever hostilities were coming to an end, it would have to be the people who agreed to the terms of the ending of the war, or the peace treaties. Um, they had to ratify them. These then were the three main branches of the Roman Republic and the primary roles. Obviously, we could spend a lot of time talking about this in detail, uh, but we don't have enough time to talk about that now if we actually want to get to the main point of this podcast. So we're going to save this for another podcast if we ever do in the future, but it will be uh, really interesting to go into this. But let's now go on to the actual question of was the fall of the Roman Republic inevitable? So we're going to start here, probably somewhere a bit different to what most of you would of thought we would have. So we're actually going to look at ancient source first because it's really important, I think at least, to get an understanding of uh, what this guy's talking about because it could show us a bit of information that will really help us qu answer this question of the fall of the Roman Republic. So we're going to look at a guy called Sallus first. So Sallus was a Roman politician and historian who rose to prominence as a member of Caesar's faction in the Senate. And I'm, when I'm talking about Caesar there, I'm talking about Julius Caesar. Then, following the end of his political career, he became he started to become a historian, writing a number of works on the history of events leading to the collapse of the Republic. So this is really around the meat of our subject, including what we assume was a large and extensive volume on the history of Rome. However, that is now lost to us. What, however, does last is two smaller works that focus on specific events in history. So the Jugurthine War, and the Catiline Conspiracy, um, and they both happen around the late Republic, so we can use this, so that's helpful. 
So the works, however, are often considered by scholars to be rather than history, but closer to uh, historical novels. And I, I guess our interpretation of today would be a bit like historical fantasy. Um, however, it wouldn't have fantastical elements of it, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be strictly history. As such, these works have a clear motive behind them, um, other than simply recording of the events. Um, so they're heavily centred around sets of characters through which the story is told. Um, in the Jugafine War, uh, it's Marius and Jugafa. And in the Catiline Conspiracy, it, the major characters are Cicero, uh, Catiline, Cato the Younger, and Judas Caesar. In these books, these characters' personalities are highlighted by Sallust um, and through his portrayal of these characters and the actions that they take, uh, we can begin to uncover how Sallust probably viewed the collapse of the Republic. Uh, the main thing that comes through in the Sallustian uh, surviving works, though, is the idea that two clashing personality traits among Roman elites, uh, the first being the greed and selfishness of the elites, uh, which can safely assume Sallust for many of Rome's senators, who were his contemporaries, possessed in abundance. They were, you know, quite greedy. Um, versus the great virtue of a man and his ability to act as respectful member of the Senate and society as a whole. This in itself is something that we could talk for a much longer time. So um, hopefully it will be something we'll come back to on another podcast, but we won't look at it today. But if you are interested, then I would really recommend you go through and read Sallust accounts um, of Caesar and Cato the Younger's speeches in the Catiline Conspiracy and the Jugurtha's rise to power in the Jugurthine War. There you really get to see this idea of uh, greedy versus morality in the Senate. Now, you might be wondering how any of this is relevant at all to the decline of the Republic. Well, for the Celestian portrayal um, of characters in his work and his focus on greed and virtue of Roman senators, there has emerged a reading of Republican history and that some scholars believe Sallust held um, so they've been reading it and they've thought that this sort of like matches and people have come to believe that actually Sallust held these opinions himself. However, this isn't, you know, 100% guaranteed, so it's very theoretical. So like many things um, to do with the Roman Republic, it was to do with Carthage. Um, and the theory that goes is that prior to the defeat of Carthage, which we talked about in our previous episode on the Punic Wars, the people of the Senate all worked together uh, for a common goal. And it was the fact that Carthage could eliminate um, Rome. The external threat was so vast in the Punic Wars as well in the Etruscan Wars that Rome had to come together for a common goal to survive. And now they have defeated Carthage. This threat that binded everyone together is now gone. But now there was no really, there was no real existential threat that could have completely destroyed uh, Rome. So instead of the senators working together for a common goal to survive a war and to not be eliminated by the Carthaginians, they now begin to work on their own agendas and for political greed and power. As Capus puts it in his book, Republicanism, Rhetoric and Roman Political Thought, Sallus, Livy and Tacitus, the political action of ambitious and competitive Romans, when separated from an attachment to the community's good, turned to vice. Effectively, he is saying 
that the competitiveness of Roman senators and the lust for power and greed, when separated from the good actions that the Senate holds, they will turn to being bad and they will turn to be negative aspects of the Senate. And so through uh, Salus, we can now see the primary reason for the collapse of the Republic, supposedly to this idea that the senators changed from steering Rome towards the greater good and the right will of the people and doing the right thing for Rome. And instead, we're now looking for their own power and greed and to manipulate their way to becoming better and more powerful. So it was no surprise that figures like Caesar and Pompey rose these humongous heights, had disastrous wars against each other in massive civil wars, uh, put in Rome at, in threat of collapse at some points. And so you can see how this eventually was going to destroy the Republic. So if you were to believe this theory of history, as seen through Sallust, then the collapse of the Republic really was inevitable. And so we're going to look through this mindset when discussing these figures that he talks about coming to rise and to power. And the first one that we're going to talk about is a guy called Gaius Marius. Gaius Marius was a Roman statesman and general who was acclaimed as the third founder of Rome due to his successful defences against the invading Germanic tribes. Marius rose to become consul of Rome. However, unlike any other consul who came before him, he managed to retain his consulship for seven times in his political career. But it fundamentally broke one of the very essential rules of the Roman Republic. And that was that no consul could be elected more than once. Marius was born in 157 BC and quickly rose to prominence in the political world through the army, becoming a military tribune and then holding a, qua a quaestorship. In 116 BC, Marius became praetor in Rome after some accusations and a trial of electoral corruption on his behalf. Marius, after a year of being praetor, was given imperium, which is nowadays called authority, to govern the province of Hispania Ulterior, which is translated as Further Spain. This is evidently an important step in his political life, as a marriage with Julia, the aunt of Julius Caesar, was on, on the cards, uh, which was evidently a sign of either an increase of wealth or political power for Marius, which probably came during his governorship of Further Spain. In 107 BC, Marius was elected consul and he enacted his Marian reforms, which were very, very important at this time period. What the reforms did was change the recruitment um, criteria for the army. And so, so they relaxed different criteria. So now people who had no land and were in any social class could join the army. And if someone were to complete their lifelong service, then they would be rewarded with land in conquered areas. This increased the size of the Roman army and the ability to rebuild and replace losses in wars, which is quite important. This reform, though, fundamentally changed the relationship between the Senate and the generals of the Roman armies. The incredibly poor would now join the army and have the reward of land from their generals after their life of service. However, this meant army's loyalty now swung in favour of the generals instead of the Senate and Rome, as the generals were the one who would actually permit the distribution of land to troops. And therefore, the army was going against the public's interest 
which is the purpose of the Senate. They were now choosing to follow the generals instead of adhering to the commands of the Senate. Marius continued to grow in prominence as he took full credit for the ending of the Jugophine War in Numidia. Now, with the Germanic tribes threatening Rome, the Roman army sent to disrupt them was utterly annihilated. Marius was elected consul for five terms in this time of need, which had not been seen before. Evidently, the law on consulships had been set aside for this emergency. However, he did not need to face the Germanic tribes until 102 BC, as they just did not intend on invading Italy until then. Meanwhile, Marius' status and power grew by the year, having little opposition for his consulships on every single election. Marius defeated the Germanic threat and had two tribunes held in his honour, making three overall during his consulship now, so quite a few. Either as a reward or due to his ever-increasing power for these military achievements, Marius was given a sixth consulship in the year of 100 BC. Marius, during his sixth consulship, was now involved in plots and decrees that meant he lost favour with the Senate and didn't run for consul for some time as he took voluntary exile to the east, but then he later returns back to Rome and this is where it picks up again. However, he was soon to be betrayed by his former subdominant, Sulla, who in 88 BC was given consulship and used Roman legions that were meant to face King Mithridates of Pontus but instead he turned them on Rome in the first time in Rome's history. Marius attempted to defend the city for the Republic by using gladiators, but alas was defeated. Marius then fled Rome to Africa. It is here that Sulla was now in full control and issued a death sentence on Marius. Marius, with the knowledge of Sulla being in the east again after another campaign, formed an army and marched on Rome, just as Sulla did, but this time with the intention of liberating the Republic from Sulla. When entering the city, most of Sulla's supporters were killed, and Marius was given his seventh consulship, and replaced Sulla as the leader of the Eastern War, with Sulla being exiled. However, unfortunately, 17 days into his new consulship, Marius died, most likely through illness. Marius had created the start of a new era for the Republic, where men grew in power, and could use the army for their own favour, and not for the Senate anymore, as seen in Sulla's civil war. Marius could have done the same, but he did not have the ambition or the knowledge of what he had created, but instead came to the defence of the Republic. However, in turn, he caused the biggest threat it had ever seen, an enemy of its own blood. So as you can see with Marius, what he's done is he's trying to strengthen the, the Republic by making bigger armies and, and having uh, losses not mean as much so armies can get re rebuild and replenish quicker. But what he's also done, as seen through Sulla, is that he's given people the ability to make themselves extremely powerful with the um, support of armies. So let's now go on to Sulla himself, because Sulla does more than this, which may influence the fall of the Republic. So Sulla was a military general and statesman who rose to a height of power that had never been seen before, acquiring the title of dictator for life. He rose to power by inv uh, involvement in the Jugophine War and the Social War. This eventually meant that he was given consulship, where he was sent to deal with Mithridates in Asia Minor. 
um, which we just mentioned in the Marius part. So as we know, Sulla was forced to step down and Marius was put in place because Marius had uh, declared that he would wipe out the debts of a person called Sulpicius, who was a tribune. And tribunes held the authority to revoke laws of the Senate. And so he revoked the law that gave Sulla the, uh, the army and so then passed it on to Marius. With this knowledge, Sulla used his authority over the army to gain their loyalty to march on Rome. His justification for these actions was that Rome had lost its traditional way by refusing the rights of that year's consul, by removing him from that year's war, which is an uncodified right that was essentially uh, or essential to the constitution of Rome. He was therefore, in his eyes, restoring the Republic's core ideas and customs. Sulla then consolidated his position by declaring Marius and his supporters as enemy of the state. However, this was overturned as well as his reforms when Marius took back control of Rome and became consul. So you can really start to see here the division of what people think is right and wrong. Sulla has done nothing necessarily wrong. He's become consul. He's then been put onto the wars that the consul should have been. And Marius has come in and changed an uncodified element that's so strict to the Roman constitution. So Sulla is seeing himself as the defender of the Republic, but so is Marius. Sulla, after the death of Marius, continued his Mithridatic War and convincingly defeated Mithridates twice to secure Roman dominance over Pontus and Asia Minor. Sulla then turned his attention back to Rome, which was still controlled by Marius' supporters and m had made Sulla an enemy of the state, just like he did to Marius himself. Sulla landed in the Italian peninsula and defeated both of the consuls of Rome, one through warfare and the other had his army completely abandon him and join Sulla. Evidently showing the amount of power and renown Sulla had accumulated through his wars and his veteran army. With these quick victories, Sulla now had neutral politicians and generals joining his side, including a young and aspiring Pompey, who came to politics with an army to support Sulla. One of the consuls Sulla defeated was called Azaginus, who went after Pompey, failed, and then looked to rebuild support from areas that supported uh, Marius. It is here we see one of the fatal changes of the Republic at this time. The urban praetor who supported Azaginus led a massacre through the Senate, killing everyone who lent towards the invading forces of Sulla. Eventually, after many engagements from both sides, Sulla and his supporters met the remaining Marian supporters, who were the Samnites, outside the city walls of Rome. This is where Sulla, after a very close victory, was left standing in full control of Rome, ending the Marian port. Sulla now had complete control over Rome. It was now that Sulla was made dictator for life a position not seen since the Punic Wars, but this time it was permanent and not for times of desperation. He now enacted his prescriptions where everyone found guilty of going against the Republic while Sulla was in the East faced death. This essentially was a butchering of Marius' supporters, but in innocents were seemingly killed in order to confiscate their property and wealth, where Sulla became wealthy from this act. One individual who was targeted was Julius Caesar, 
who was eventually allowed to live, but not to Sulla's regret. Sulla now made some constitutional changes to Rome's governing systems, where he deprived the tribune of the plebs and the plebeian council, where it could no longer create legislation. The position of tribune was also majorly hampered in power. Anyone elected that to that position could no longer attain any other position, preventing lower classes from reaching higher political careers. And he also revoked the law that meant tribunes could veto acts of the Senate, so their powers and their reach were severely limited. This makes sense for Sulla, as it was the tribunes that revoked Sulla's uh, legitimacy to go and lead the army, which he then turned around and attacked Rome with. So this may be an out of frustration, but all we know is it meant there was less checks on the consuls, and so the very, very highest uh, elite of people in the Senate were now becoming even stronger. Sulla also increased the Senate to 600 people and gave them more power. However, Sulla still enacted his powers without the Senate and extended the sacred boundaries of Rome, which had not been done since the time of the kings, the very start of the Roman Republic. Once this was complete, he made more reforms to prevent anyone seizing power in the method that he had by making a 10-year gap between holding offices. And people could only govern a province and hold an army after they left office. Sulla was definitely solidifying his claim to being the most powerful Roman of all time. He had got to a height that no one had done before, and he had he now set up ways to prevent anyone doing that again. Sulla resigned from his office of dictator and became consul the following year to only retire shortly after and seemingly left political life behind only to interact a few times regarding his own policies. But the impact that he had done into the political life of Rome was to be felt until the very last days of the Roman Republic. I don't think even him himself understood what he had done. So two people that really used the changes and reforms that Marius and Sulla had put into the Roman Republic were the two people called Pompey and Julius Caesar, quite famous individuals, I'm sure you've probably all heard of them. Pompey had risen to a high political position due to his exceptional campaigns and wars, alongside his political alliances and marriages with Julius Caesar. Pompey was allied to the two most powerful members of the Roman Republic, Crassus and Julius Caesar, in the first triumvirate. Pompey was given the position of prefect of provisions and sorted the grain supply as Rome was entering a time of famine. Pompey managed to stabilise the problem and even created a surplus of food which brought him much power and popularity, especially with the plebs of the city of Rome. Caesar then in instigated that Pompey and Crassus should run for consuls and give them both the provinces and armies so they could confirm Caesar's own province for another five years. However, with the growth of Caesar's popularity and admiration for his Gaelic campaigns, Pompey aligned himself more with Crassus as he believed he could not defeat Caesar by himself if it ever came to conflict. Pompey and Crassus both won their consulships of that year by means of political intrigue, it would seem, and both would acquire province, with Pompey attaining Hispania Citeria and Hispania Ulterior, meaning he could raise an army from these regions. 
To keep Caesar's supporters appeased, though, they both increased Caesar's command by either three years, as seen in Cassiodio's uh, accounts, or five years in Plutarch's accounts. And so Pompey, Caesar, and Crassus were now the three most powerful men in the Roman Republic, with only each other to keep them in check. However, Pompey was the only man in Rome, and therefore had the ears of the Senate, which played out to be a massive favour in his hand. The political dynamic changed when Crassus died in his Parthian expedition and left Pompey and Caesar contesting who was the most powerful, with both resenting the other. After political turmoil in the city of Rome, where there was infighting on the streets of Rome due to the consulship elections, uh, Pompey was granted sole consul to be able to eradicate this problem and stabilise Rome. In 51 BC, new consuls were elected and a discussion about the replacement of Caesar in his campaign was brought forward. It ended with an agreement that Pompey and Caesar would lay down their arms and give their claims to governments away. However, this came to nothing but outlined a significant problem that these two men wouldn't give up their positions first in the hope of retaining their power and being able to destroy the others. This would therefore make them the one sole person who has the most power in the Roman Republic. Eventually, an agreement was made that Caesar was a public enemy and threatened Rome by not disbanding his legions whilst he was looming in the Italian peninsula over Rome. Pompey had managed to be the defender of Rome in people's eyes, and whilst trying to weaken his main rival, he had gained popularity and support from the Senate and from Rome. He was sent out to raise 130,000 Italian troops, paid solely by the Senate. The two men were now at war, where they had skirmishes throughout the territories, with fighting in Spain, Tunisia and Greece. The problem that Rome faced as a result of this scenario was that depending on who had control or influence over the Senate in Rome held complete power. As seen by Caesar, who was given dictatorship by the Senate in Rome, even though the majority of senators was with Pompey in Greece. And so you have half the Senate and the current consuls naming Caesar as the enemy of the state, and then the rest claiming that Caesar as dictator and consul. So you have a Senate that is completely divided between two individuals, and whoever's actually in Rome at the time seems to have the power of the Senate. Caesar, with his new power, made the people of Cisalpine Gaul Roman citizens, which included most of his legions at that point, which gained him much loyalty and created a new. And he also created a new voting block, which was massively in his favour, so he could influence elections for decades. Very tyrannical movements at this time period. In the end, they fought two large battles with Caesar being the victor, which resulted in Pompey being killed in Egypt by the Egyptians. Following the end of the civil war, Caesar was named dictator for life by the Senate, and following his return to Italy, he had a triumph in his honour, which was essentially a big parade for successful Roman military commanders. It was after this that there was no real public op opposition to Caesar anymore, and he held all the power of the Republic. He was later assassinated by 23 senators, and his estates were left to his adopted son Octavian. But by this point, the damage to the Republic was already irreversible. The next decade or so was dominated by the Second Triumvirate, and when Octavian won the following war, 
he was named Princept, or First Citizen of Rome, and became Augustus Caesar, the first emperor. So these four individuals, Sulla, Marius, Pompey, and Caesar, clearly go into a way that, with this Sallustian view, are these individuals who come, rise up, and tear the Republic apart because of their own egos and their own greed and lust for power. So to conclude, we're going to go over some of the major problems with the Republic and how these people exacerbated and made bigger fractures on these already inherent problems. So the first is the lack of sufficient checks and balances outlined in the laws in order to prevent individuals becoming more powerful than the Republic itself. Obviously, there were checks in place. There was the role of the tribunes. Uh, as we said, they could veto laws by the Senate, and so they vetoed Sulla's uh, campaign, leading the Kang campaign. And the existence of two consuls was also meant to keep um, uh, the consuls in check. So one could never grow too power powerful because there was the other one to stop him. That was the intention of the consuls. However, clearly, these checks did not work in in the first century as it was dominated by people who rose through the position of consul to completely um, ignore the other consul and do as they please and to become these amazing powerful individuals in this supposedly uh, workable mixed constitution that was meant to prevent this exact thing from happening. Another problem that we see is the fact that armies became loyal to their commanders instead of Rome. And this is mostly due to Marian's reforms. Because they had um, reason to support the uh, the generals because of their promise of land, they would give out their money. They didn't have a reason to support the Senate anymore. So the, the idea of doing what the Senate wanted for the will of the people, for the good of the people, just went out the window because they were looking for selfish motives. And you can see that for the Celestian view as well, where there was no fin to bound together against the Carthaginians or the Etruscans. Now, you know, you had Caesar in Gaul, you had Crassus in Parthia. There was two big uh, uh, wars going on, and so people would be interested in the generals there and their commanders, not so much about what the Senate wanted. However, were these problems always present, or were these new developments? Why does the Republic not fall sooner? Surely the popularity of Scipio Africanus after the Battle of Zama uh, meant he could have, you know, the popularity enough to do what maybe Marius or Caesar did, uh, but he didn't. Um, so then what changed is the real question. I would argue that the main turning point in the decline of the Republic was the Marian reforms of the army, and that led uh, to allowing these military commanders to build up large armies and they could exert their influence over the Republic, which led to the ma major civil wars and social wars in the period that these wars and the outcomes of them uh, that really showed the cracks in the framework of the Republic and caused the Republic to collapse. Um, and so the collapse of the Republic was inevitable after these reforms. However, there are many different positions in scholarship on the decline of the Republic and therefore its causes. The 1st century BC is one of the most important periods, if not the most important period, of Roman history. 
so it's very heavenly written on so we aren't going to be able to cover all the different views that's that's around some people such as chris our guest from the last episode on the punic wars believe that the Celestian reading of history that we discussed earlier and the decline of the Roman Republic was inevitable because Rome defeated Carthage. There was no external threat for people to bind together with. And so the glue that kept the Republic together had dissolved. So to conclude with all this, what do you believe caused the collapse of the Roman Republic? And do you think it was inevitable? And if so, at what point in history was it? Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the AIQ podcast. If you found this to- these topics enjoyable, then we really recommend you go and read Plutarch, The Lives of Marius, um, Sulla, Pompey and Caesar. He covers all of those together, as does Cassio Dio. So Cassio Dio would also be very good to go and read. For modern scholarship, if you would like to go down that route, we would really recommend... Cicero and the End of the Republic by Thomas Weidemann. On the next episode, we have a very special guest coming on, a man named Sean Strong. He is a University of Wales, Trinity St. David and Oxford University graduate, and he'll be coming on and we'll be talking about the late antique period. Stay tuned for that, and thank you very much for listening to this episode. See you next time.